Well, good morning, everyone. As I said at the start, we've decided to switch things up a bit this morning. Um, this is Tamworth Elim's first ever tag team preach that we're going to do today. Me and Steve are going to attempt to answer not one, not two, but three big questions. I know. It's exciting, isn't it? In the time that it's taken us to answer one over the past six weeks, they said it can never be done. I'm not entirely convinced it can, but we're going to give it a go anyway. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to start uh, and try and provide an answer for the first question, and then Steve's going to jump in and do the second, and then I'm going to do a third, and then we're going to kind of tie the morning up, hopefully before your roast dinner burns. Um, wish us luck. If we could keep heckling to a minimum, it would uh, save time. Okay, here we go. So, the first big question this morning. Isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? So I guess the idea behind this question is that Christianity is really only for uh, those who are weak, or perhaps uh, unintelligent, or maybe scared of dying. And it's an opinion that I've heard many times. And actually, I think it's an opinion that um, is quite... Uh, um, you see it a lot in our society today, particularly in our culture. Those that believe in God, those that have a faith, must be perhaps a bit simple, a bit thick. And uh, a couple of weeks ago on Alpha, I asked my group if any of them had shared with their friends the fact that they were on an Alpha course. And uh, a few said they had, um, but most that said they had said that they were met with a kind of... Hmm, you don't believe that, do you? With the kind of eye-rolling that comes along with it. And it seems that this is a popular opinion. The famous Austrian psychiatrist Sigmund Freud makes this observation about religious belief. He says they are illusions. Fulfillments of the oldest, strongest and most urgent wishes of mankind. As we already know, the terrifying impression of helplessness in childhood aroused the need for protection. Protection through love, which was provided by the Father. Thus, the benevolent rule of the divine providence allays our fears of the dangers of life. Gosh, that's a heavy quote for this morning, isn't it? So as with most of Freud's theories, he puts faith or religion down to some sort of deficiency in childhood. That was, uh, that was sort of his... Thing. And he suggests that the idea of God is sort of a, a cosmic replacement for our own fathers to show us the love and attention that we so desperately crave. And it's an interesting idea, but I think you would imagine that if um, this were true, then more religious would, religions would emphasize God as a, as a father figure. When in fact, prior to Christianity, very few did. Perhaps no one had daddy issues back then. And if we're to accept that Christians have simply made up this cosmic father figure, then why would they have made up one that was so hard to please? A father who can never measure up by our own efforts doesn't provide us with a very good crutch. Why not simply make up a cosmic father that's pleased no matter what we do? And I think this argument falls flat because actually the idea that Christians have created God as a comfort is just as plausible as claiming that atheists, atheists reject God for the same reason. In fact, we know um, Freud had fairly major issues with his father. Perhaps his anger towards his earthly father was what led him to reject his heavenly one. 
Obviously, um, this isn't the case for everyone. But my point is that claiming Christianity is just wishful thinking isn't actually a very strong argument. In fact, you could, you could convincingly argue that not believing in God makes life easier. There's no uh, accountability for the way you live, no judgment. You know, you're free to live however you please. The atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel said this, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And as much as Christians believe in God and hope in God, he hopes that there isn't one. So we can continue to live the way that he wants to live. And that's not the purpose of Christianity. It's not the point of Christianity. In fact, in most cases, being a Christian can make life harder, not easier. See, Jesus asks his followers to take up their cross. He asks them to follow in his footsteps. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do. To live lives of humility, to, to forgive each other, to pray for our enemies to repent of our disobedience and accept that we need a saviour. Being a Christian is challenging. To walk in the ways of Jesus is hard. Many people believe that being a Christian is a crutch when actually it's about carrying a cross. And this is what Jesus' followers did. Many of them to their death. James was beheaded. Simon, Peter, Bartholomew and Andrew were all crucified. Philip was stoned to death. Mark, Matthew, Thomas, they were all killed for their faith. And following Jesus in the first century was hard. And in fact, for many people around the world today, it still is a very, very hard thing. Christians today are still being beheaded and crucified for their belief in God. Christians in Iraq and Syria, as you've seen on the news, they're currently being chased from their homes for their refusal to deny their belief in God. They could never claim that Christianity has made their life easier. So why go for it? Well, this week I read about uh, Joni Erickson Tada. And she became a quadriplegic after an accident when she was only 17 years old. And this is what she says about her faith. I believe in Jesus not because it's easy, but because it's true. If Christianity was false, it would be a useless crutch. At least alcohol works, even if only for a short time. But if Christianity is true, it's a cure not a crutch. And I think the simple reality is that for millions of people around the world, Christianity has made the difference in their lives. It's given them a cure, not just a crutch, but a new life, a life worth living, a life worth pursuing, sometimes, as I've said, even to death. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5 says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Fully restored. Christianity is a cure, not a crutch. One final point. Um, Paul writes to his letter in the Corinthians, to his letter to the Corinthians, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Don't be discouraged this morning. Chances are people who haven't found this faith, haven't found this cure in their lives, are never going to understand the difference that it makes. They will continue to see Christianity and those that follow Christianity as foolish. But for us, it's the power of God. Those that believe, those that know the difference that it makes in their life. So is Christianity a psychological crutch? Well, no. It's far more than that. Christianity is a cross and a cure, and to those who believe, it's the power of God. End of question one. This feels very strange. I don't know so much about tag team preaching, but uh, more like a preach-off. <laughs> okay, my question is this. If Jesus is the only way to God, what about those who have never heard of Jesus? In order to attempt to answer this question, I need to lay down two key truths from Scripture. Firstly, God's love is universal. God loves all people. He desires all people everywhere that they should come into a saving knowledge of Jesus. And the second key truth is this, that there is only one way to God, and that one way is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are so many verses that I could quote this morning. In fact, I could keep you here all morning and afternoon. But I just want to take a sample of verses from the New Testament that teach uh, these truths. Um, one verse that speaks of God's universal love is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. They're a very clear statement of God's desire for all humanity. Um, and then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And this verse declares that there is only one way. There is only one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, uh, in John 14, verse 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father, or no one, it says in that version, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's no other name given to men. There's no other name, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or David Koresh or no other religion or philosophy. It is only Jesus. There's a couple of verses I want to share with you which uh, actually combine both of these truths, uh, that God's love is universal and that Jesus is the only way. No surprises here in this verse that I've just put on screen. Probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And as I say, that, those verses there contain both those truths, that God's love is for the world, that salvation is for the whoever believes, and also that salvation is, is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Another scripture which uh, affirms both these truths is found in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 6. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. You see, God's desire is that everyone in this world come to know him. But that verse is also telling us that there is only one person, one mediator, one saviour, and his name is Jesus. Now, the Bible is very, very clear, and as I could give you many other verses on this, that God is a, desi- a God who desires all men, women, children, everywhere throughout this world in which we live should come to a knowledge of him. God doesn't play favorites. There's no in crowd. There's no special elite. And it's also only through Jesus. Now, this causes us a little bit of a problem. And the problem is not everyone has heard of Jesus. There are many people throughout our world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And therefore, why should they be blamed for when they were born or where they were born or the cultural religion into which they were born? Are we saying that those born in Buckinghamshire have a far greater chance to know Jesus than those born in Beirut or Bangladesh or Bangalore? Is becoming a Christian just the luck of the draw, a kind of postcode lottery? Let me be a little bit more provocative. I know it's unusual for me. But what about those people in Britain, a so-called Christian country who have never heard the message of Christ's redeeming love? Let's be even more challenging than that. And ask the question, what about those who have been turned away from true Christianity because they never got the chance to hear the glorious message of Jesus Christ in the first place because of the stomach-churning hypocrisy maybe of some church leader who gets caught red-handed in the vestry with a church organist. And they weren't planning hymns for the following Sunday service either. We haven't got a church organist (laughs) or a church vestry. Or maybe the person who has been prejudiced against Christianity because of Mrs. Blabbermouth, the village gossip who is also the church deacon. Or maybe because of some sleazy tele-evangelist and his get-rich-quick schemes. I wonder how many people have been put off the message of Christ and uh, well before they ever heard of the message. So... In a sense, that's the start of laying the foundation of trying to answer this really difficult question. When we are thinking about people who haven't heard, let us not just think of the Amazonian tribesman who has no contact whatsoever with civilization. And that leads us on to our question, this second question. If Jesus is the only way to God, what about those who have never heard in Jesus? Well, I've laid before you this morning two key truths. One, that God's love is universal. And secondly, that it is only through Jesus that one can come to God. But I would add another truth, a very important truth. And it's this. God is always fair. So people who have not heard about Jesus in life they will be disadvantaged. Obviously, to not hear of Jesus in this life is is a place of disadvantage. But that does not mean that they will necessarily be disadvantaged into eternity. God will not judge those who have never heard the name of Jesus in the same way as those who have had the opportunity to believe. 
That would be unfair. It would be unjust in the extreme. And God is not unfair or unjust. I would say that those who have never heard the name of Jesus or have never heard the, the glorious message of the gospel are in the same position as people from the Old Testament times. People like Abraham and Moses and David and others who didn't know anything at all about Jesus, didn't know anything all about his life or his atoning work, his death, his resurrection. And yet in the New Testament they are spoken about as heroes of faith. Abraham. For example, lived nearly 2,000 years before Jesus. And yet it was still the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who saved him. Because you see, the death of Christ and what Jesus achieved on the cross not only is projected forward throughout history, it's also projected back. And even though people like Abraham didn't even know about Christ, it was through the death of Christ that he was saved because there is simply no other way. But he was saved on the basis of his faith in God. It was, he was saved on the basis of how he responded to what he knew about God. Read it for yourself in Genesis chapter 15. There's a great verse there which says, Abraham believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. So when God said that Abraham would have a child in his old age, Abraham took God at his word, and it was that taking God at his word, that faith, what saved Abraham. You might say, is that it? Yes, that's it. He didn't go on an alpha course. He couldn't be judged on what he didn't know. Abraham responded in trust to what God had shown him. And that was enough. Jesus spoke of it as the mustard seed of faith, yes? And what kind of response might God be looking for today from those who have not heard about Jesus? Well, I believe that God is looking for a response to the revelation that we have had. I'm sure there's no one in this room could say, well, I've never heard. Because that option would not be open to us. We have heard. We do know. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so men are without excuse. So God has given two clues here, two clues about himself for every person who is alive on earth. Clue number one is creation and clue number two is conscience. You see the first clue, creation, the world about us, the beauty, the order, the design tells us that there is a supreme, magnificent designer of everything. Conscience, that inner voice which acts like a director of telling us what is right and what is wrong. And even though people might not have heard the name of Jesus, Paul says here in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, that all men and women are without excuse. That God, is not, God has not left himself without witness in the world. So, if God accepted Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Christ, simply... Because he believed that Sarah was going to have a baby. Then my question is, 
Is it too extreme to believe that God might accept as righteous the person who trusts in God, who created the beauty all around him, even though he might not have heard the name of Jesus? I think that we have something similar going on here. You see, the Bible teaches us very clearly that people are saved by their faith in God, not by the amount of knowledge that they possess. Ignorance doesn't disqualify grace. God hasn't set a limit of how much we need to know before he will accept us, that we have to know this amount of systematic theology. And we have to have basic courses in ecclesiology and soteriology and eschatology and all the other ologies. Pneumatology. What? Rheumatology. No, that, that, that was not in. And he's just got his degree in theology. You wouldn't believe this, would you? <laughs> you see, some of our friends in Alpha have recently trusted in Jesus. And it's wonderful to uh, see their lives being transformed. But I would say of those friends who have just recently discovered Jesus through Alpha, that their understanding and knowledge of the Christian faith at this moment in time is probably a little bit sketchy. They're in a, they're in a time of great discovery. They might have no idea what justification by faith means. But again, the Bible teaches us something very important. It teaches us that we are justified by faith, not by our belief in justification by faith. Yeah? Some of you might get that. If you don't, don't worry. Okay. You see, it's God that saves. Not what one knows about or doesn't know about the Christian faith. An illustration might help you, and I'm nearly done. When slavery was abolished uh, in the British Empire in the year 1833, thousands of people in Africa were made safe from the threat of captivity uh, to West Indies and the Americas. The majority of those people knew nothing at all about the British government, and even less about the Act of Parliament which guaranteed their freedom. However, despite their ignorance of all these things, they still enjoyed the freedom that had been won for them. Yeah? And it's equally possible, I would say, that those who are ignorant of Christ, his death, his resurrection, that they can enjoy the freedom which Christ has won on their behalf if they have never heard the name of Jesus. So the obvious question is this. Is it better then not to tell people about Jesus? I hadn't thought about that till Dan asked me that question on Friday. Thank you, Dan, for that. Yeah, thank you. Is it then better not to tell other people about Jesus? Because if we tell them, they might reject the message and the Savior, whereas if we don't tell them, they might one day stand before God and claim that ignorance is bliss. I could go on and spend a long time on this, but I'm not going to. But let me just give you two reasons why it is so important to tell people about Jesus. Number one, 
If you're a Christian, you have been commissioned to tell others about Jesus. It is your joy, your privilege, and your commission. And not to do so is to disobey Jesus. And secondly, let us never think of Christianity merely as some kind of ticket to heaven. Some Christians think that way. I don't. And it's a wrong way of thinking. As someone once said, Christianity is not just pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on your plate while you wait. I think that's right. You know, if you only see Christianity as a ticket to heaven and think, okay, I've said the sinner's prayer, I'm I'm okay for heaven now. You've not even begun to understand what Christianity is all about. You've not even begun to understand the message of Jesus. You haven't even scratched the surface. It's not about that. Jesus actually spoke far more about this life than he ever did the next. Over to my tag partner. Okay, everyone all right? We all right? Round three. Here we go. Ding, ding, ding. So it's less exciting than a sing-off, isn't it? That's for sure. We're doing our best. Right, last question in the morning. Um, aren't Christians narrow-minded? Okay, so I'm going to pick up a few, on a few things that Steve has said um, and, and take them a little bit further in this one. Um, I guess whether we say Christians are narrow-minded or not depends on our definition of what narrow-minded is. Um, Earlier in the series we looked at um, whether or not it's offensive to claim that Jesus is the only way to God, um, uh, which you could most certainly argue is a narrow-minded position. In fact, Steve has has just reminded us that Jesus is the only way to God. Um, And on another occasion, Jesus said this, "'Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction.'" And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road which leads to life and only a few find it. So certainly when we're talking about issues of salvation, there is only one way to God. There is a narrow-mindedness to that. But I think it's worth mentioning, just because something is described as narrow doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. When the DVLA tell us that we should only drive on the left in the UK... It's because it's the right way to drive in the UK. And if we were to drive our own way, well, in the words of Jesus, that road leads to destruction. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, There's only one way to fix a broken bone. You have to set the bone and you have to hold it in place. Um, When I broke my arm as a child, if my parents refused the correct treatment, I'd have a very floppy arm now. Um, There's only one way to make a souffle. You need butter, flour, milk and eggs and a lot of patience. Um, So we understand that in the physical world, things are sometimes (coughs) narrow. Sometimes there is only a single way of doing something. Why do we then assume that it must be different in the spiritual? But I think this question is a little bit bigger than just (coughs) salvation. I think this is to do with the fact that people are turned off by Uh, I turn off of Christianity because the lifestyle is too restrictive. There are too many rules and regulations, too many things that are um, holding us back, too many limitations. Uh, The 20th century social activist Emma Goldman called Christianity the leveller of the human race, the breaker of man's will to do and dare, an iron net, a straitjacket which does not expand or grow. She looks like a barrel of laughs, doesn't she? (laughs) 
You can imagine saying that, can't you? You really can. So the, the, the inference is that if we follow Jesus, if we follow God, then we are no longer free. We are trapped. Jesus had a very different take on this. He said this. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How can holding to a set of teachings set you free? Well, I guess this depends on your understanding of freedom. Immanuel Kant defined uh, an enlightened human being as one who trusts in his or her own power of thinking rather than in authority or tradition. And in fact, this was very much the view held by those that Jesus was speaking to when he said these words. Um, They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? In other words, we've never submitted to any authority that's been over us. There's no one telling us what to do. Therefore, we must already be free. And this is what Jesus says to them. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So as Jesus often does, he points them to a deeper reality, something that they've not noticed about their own lives. Let me try and um, unpack it for you a little bit this morning, he says, glancing at the clock. Um, All of us look for something that makes us happy, something that makes life work for us, don't we? And if these things that we, we go after with our lives end up replacing God in our lives, then they become what the Bible calls sinful. And they end up having a control over us because we have to go after them. We have to have them. They be, we become slaves to them. So let me give you some examples. Um, perhaps the thing we want is success. And we have to succeed at all costs. We become jealous of those that are more successful than we are. And we um, do anything that we need to to get ahead, even if we hurt people along the way. Maybe it's other people's opinions of us. Maybe we only dress and act the way that we do because we want other people to be impressed. And we're always worried what people are thinking of us. And, and you know, if we get criticised, then that's um, a terrible thing that kills us. Maybe it's romance, you know, where we're always looking for that perfect relationship and no one ever quite measures up to our expectations. Or it could be materialism, you know, where we have to have the latest and the greatest of everything that we own. Or maybe it's just money itself, you know, we have to have the most amount in our bank account. Or another big one is is sensual pleasures, you know, drink and drug, where we're just living for the next high. Or maybe it's sex where we spend countless hours looking at pornography or searching for that next one-night stand. You see, all of these things, all of these wants and desires, they have the ability to control our life, don't they? They have the ability to limit our freedoms to the extent that we're only living to please them. As Bob Dylan once sang, You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So when Jesus talks about finding freedom, it's not the absence of a controlling authority. It's the presence of the right one. The one that brings us closest to our created purpose. And Jesus claims that his teaching is just that. Not that it restricts our lives, but that it frees our lives. Jesus came to bring us salvation, 
but he also came to show us how to live. This is what Steve was, was getting at a short time ago. It says in John 10.10 10, that I have come, they may have life, and that they have it to the full. So what looks like narrow-mindedness to the rest of the world is actually the best and the most freeing way that we can live. It's a little bit like Doctor Who's TARDIS. Yeah? From the outside, it looks like a small, cramped police box that you'd never want to get into with a strange man. But when you go inside, it opens up into a whole world. Come on, there's more sci-fi fans than just me. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll think of another analogy. One sec. Um, I love this about Christianity. And I think this is what it comes down to. And, and, and I, I really enjoyed Steve's quote about steak. You know, steak. Um, but, you know, God doesn't want us to just exist. He wants us to flourish. He want, doesn't want us to survive, but to thrive. Yeah, your, your steak thing was better, definitely. Um, On one occasion, a lawyer asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws, all the rules, all the regulations, they hang on these two things. Love God with everything you've got and love other people. That's it. If we want to get the most out of our life, then uh, we want to live to the fullest, then we need to stop living for ourselves, our own selfish desires, the things which just make us feel good. And instead, we need to be filled with love for God and do what's best for those around us. Even when that's difficult, and even when that means giving up some of the things that we want or some of the things that we perhaps think that we need. I, um, I grew some tomatoes this year. Uh, not by choice, I might add. They were a very thoughtful birthday present from my father. Um, he provided me with three saplings, uh, a grow bag and a, a put-up greenhouse thing and uh, <laughs> bear with me and they, they grow quite quickly tomato plants and uh, the, the, they, they, sh- they shoot up and the first one did really well it shot up and it even started having some, some little green fruit on it but the other two they were a source of great frustration to me because although they were like massive there was nothing on them that I could eat and um, so I did some research and it turns out that if you want a tomato plant to flourish, you have to do something called pruning, right? um, which basically means that you have to cut bits off. <laughs> you have to restrict the growth so that its efforts can go into producing the fruit that it's supposed to produce so that it can fulfill its purpose. Now, if you want your kids to flourish, sometimes you need to encourage them to do the things they might not want to do, eat their vegetables, clean their rooms. Be in before midnight. Obviously, I don't let my kids out till midnight. <laughs> Childline. <laughs> um, but it's not narrow-mindedness, it's love. Isn't it? We restrict our children because we love them and we want them to be the best that we possibly can be. I cut off bits of my tomato plants because I want tomatoes out of them. Paul would have answered the question... Um, aren't Christians narrow-minded this way? He'd have said, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Just because we can live however we please doesn't mean that we should. Um, In Alpha this week, we were talking about church. It was the last Alpha. And uh, one of my group was telling me that one of the reasons he loves church was because it gives him a deeper and more beautiful purpose in life. 
He said that his friends, they like to sort of fill their time with, with hobbies and things. He said a recent one was, was brewing beer, which is fine. Um, but through church encouraging his faith, he's compelled to find more and better ways of loving people. Which seems like a much more worthwhile way of living, doesn't it? So, are Christians now reminded? I guess in some ways we are. But only because it helps us to be exactly who we are supposed to be. <laughs> oh, gone too far. <clears throat> Thanks. I enjoyed that. That was great. Thank you, Dan. Well, over the last uh, few weeks, we've attempted to answer some of the, the big questions of faith and life. Questions that are asked often by Christians, often by those outside the church. And just as a, a quick recap, these are the questions that we have uh, got our heads around the last few weeks. How can a God of love allow suffering in the world? Do miracles contradict science? Are Christian, Christianity and science compatible? Is it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Can we really trust the Bible? What about church? And then this morning, the three questions. Isn't Christianity a psychological crutch? If Jesus is the only way to God, what about those who have never heard of Jesus? And as Dan has just brought to us, aren't Christians narrow-minded? If you've missed any of these talks, then they're all available uh, for free on our website. But why did we bother? Why did we bother doing this particular course? Why did we decide to attempt to answer these, these big questions? Well, the New Testament encourages us to give the answer for the hope that we have. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And over the weeks, it's been my privilege and my pleasure to have lots of conversations, conversations with people in Alpha, conversations with folk who have come and visited on a Sunday morning, who were surprised that the, the Christian faith is actually far more intellectually robust than they ever thought that it was. And therefore, they were given plausible answers to many of their searching questions. And some of those people are not yet followers of Jesus. Some are Christians already. And those who are Christians already, it's given them a new confidence uh, in sharing their faith with their friends. You know, I've often said uh, from this uh, lectern on a Sunday morning that you don't need to throw your brains away in order to become a follower of Jesus. Actually, I'd say more than that. When you become a follower of Jesus, the world makes far more sense than it did before. So, this morning, as we finish, whoever you are, whether you've been a Christian for 70 years, or 7 weeks, or 7 days, or thereabouts, or maybe you're not, just, you're not quite there yet, what I would say to you is, keep asking questions. Don't settle for worn-out platitudes and overused cliches and religious truisms. Keep fresh. Keep thinking. Keep asking questions. And the reason for that is because Jesus commands it, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and also with our minds.
next week. Our subject is, and we're finishing off the series with this, Can I be a Christian and still doubt?